Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Midtown Atlanta, it's time for Top Docs Radio, brought to you by Medical Association of Georgia. With over 7,800 physician members, MAG is pleased to advocate on behalf of Georgia's patients and physicians. Visit mag.org and on Twitter at mag1849. Join the conversation on Twitter at Top Docs on BRX. What is up, everyone? It is CW, your host here on the Top Docs Radio Show. Thanks for making us a part of your day today. Have a couple of folks to introduce you to today. One of them is going to be joining me here just a little bit later. And so we're going to uh, hop on the phone right now with Dr. Jay Faber of the Amen Clinic. And he is a gentleman that just recently published a book aimed at individuals dealing with addiction, how to help keep them out of incarceration um, and dealing with problems that come from addiction. I know over time here on the show, we've covered uh, addiction and, and, and the challenges that our community is facing and several initiatives underway, like the Think About It campaign uh, being put forth by the Medical Association of Georgia Foundation, trying to deal with better understanding of prescription medication, for example. I know that's one source for a lot of folks who end up dealing with an addiction of some kind. I actually have a family member who followed that path and had to endure that. So to have Dr. Faber on to talk a little bit about his book that he's putting out for these folks, uh, much appreciated. Thanks for jumping on, Dr. Faber. Thank you, CW. Good Good to be here. Introduce folks to the Amen Clinic and what it's all about, and then we can get into the the book itself and what motivated it to uh, be written. Yeah, yeah. The Amen Clinic, it is a psychiatric clinic that has a bit of a different twist. Dr. Daniel Amen, founder, started the clinic about 25 years ago in uh, Northern and Southern California, and about four years ago, the clinic started to branch out in one of the cities it branched to was Atlanta, Georgia, which is where I moved and helped get that clinic going. So the clinic sees probably some of the more psychiatric ill people. It's it's primarily a place where people who aren't getting better come. Mm-hmm. And rather than just doing a formal psychiatric evaluation where we listen, ask a lot of questions, listen, ask a lot of questions, we do all that plus we do a lot of seeing. So, and the seeing comes from doing something called spec scans. Spec scans, it's a fancy word, but that basically says we look at blood flow in the brain. And what we're finding is that the blood flow is one measure of how well or how not well the brain is functioning. And through, through about 25 years of doing this technological approach and keeping roughly now about 120,000 scans, Dr. Eamon's been able to keep that data and start to figure out why people are getting depressed, why people are getting anxious, why people get angry, um, why people make bad decisions, why people use certain drugs, uh, why people constantly seem to be going back to drugs. So we've used that knowledge of the brain to start to come up with better treatment plans that are more target-focused to help the brain work better. and, and, and just kind of in, akin to what you were saying earlier, we do take more of a holistic approach to helping the brain work better. By that, it means we're not opposed to medications, but we also find that supplements a lot of times can be very effective in helping the brain function better. Just as when you go to the gym and you take your, your protein powders and creatinines, 
we're finding out that sometimes we can use supplements to get our brains less anxious or less irritable or angry as well. What sorts of data or, or information pictures began to develop for you as you were looking at these scans? Was there certain activity that you were starting to see common threads between certain conditions, I guess, in terms of wear and the intensity? Yeah, of activity yeah like say, for example, you know, our temporal lobes, uh, if they are underactive, particularly on the surface, we see a lot of problems with, with anger, with, with irritability, uh, with frustration. And if your temporal lobes underneath, a little bit deeper down, are overactive, too much blood flow, they get we get more angry and irritable. Now, that being said, you have to kind of look at the whole context of the brain because other parts can interplay. For example, if our frontal lobes aren't working so well, all right, and our frontal lobes help us with focus, help us with making good decisions, and we simultaneously have temporal lobe problems, that's not such a great combination. Those mm. those are people we really, really get concerned about have anger problems and oftentimes can get themselves into all sorts of trouble legally. We can see a part of our brain called the basal ganglia. If they get too much blood flow, um, people tend to get more anxious. They tend to be more nervous. They worry more. Um, we also see for kids, when they're real active, they tend to procrastinate. They don't do their homework assignments. So we got that part of our brain, our anterior cingulate, which is part of our brain located in the front, but down a bit. We can see a lot of focusing problems there. Mm -hmm. um, not so much the focusing where we're jumping from one topic to another, but more the daydreamers. You're focusing, but you're focusing on the wrong thing. Um, those people also tend to get stuck a lot on thoughts. Okay. So, and by stuck, um, we can see things like our sort of our road ragers. Someone's driving down the road, they pass us and almost hit us. Understandably, we're upset up in Atlanta. Well, now we're driving down the I 75 to Macon, still chasing the person. Yeah. Uh, that's not so understandable. Uh, but if their anterior singlets work and do hard, these people get stuck. They can't let go the thoughts in their head and it's hard for them to kind of take a step back and see things so um there's several other areas i could go on and on and talk but but those are just some for examples i find it intriguing are, are, are most of these things that you're talking about that you're finding on the scans are they result of injury of some kind or is it more like a you know just a congenital defect if you will or a... no that's a great question um i would from my experience and this is not always the case but just on the surface if we've got problems with the cortex, a lot of times it's because of past injury to the head. And sometimes just hits we might not necessarily right. remember, but when we start asking, it's like, yeah, it's like I did fall off the swing set and I saw stars and uh, was was unconscious for five seconds, you know. So we see that or some of our athletes, you know, we do a lot of work with NFL players. Um, initially, a lot of the NFL players were coming to see us. Dr. Eamon got highly involved. We got a lot of people coming in, played ball, couldn't remember well, couldn't speak well, and they got MRIs and they were normal. And Dr. Eamon says, well, maybe we should get a spec scan just to see. And we got these spec scans. And it was like one of these open quote, oh my God, kind of movements. Mm -hmm. And if you did the perfusion over the whole surface, I mean, it was just demonstrably less. Um, and with that, so with that, then we started finding out ways we could actually help the cortex start to rehabilitate. So on the surface, we, we get a little bit more concerned about external, internally, below surface, a lot of more genetics go on there with anxiety and depression, especially we see more of a genetic 
focus subcortically. We've been talking with adult and children's psychiatrist, Dr. Jay Faber of Amen Clinic, located both in Atlanta as well as Costa Mesa, California. And we were learning a little bit about the interesting approach used by Amen Clinic to work with folks who are dealing with mental illness that has not been responding to treatment in in other um places where they've sought care. And as it happens, as I mentioned in the early part of the show, uh, Dr. Faber recently published a book called Escape, Rehab Your Brain to Stay Out of the Legal System. So talk a little bit about the book and its genesis. What what made this come to be? Yeah, I mean, I had a few different things. One is I started seeing uh, some of our young adolescents or early adults that were getting into all sorts of problems with the law and anger problems. And um, we started looking at the brains and, and seeing there's a combination of different things going on. And so with medication supplements, we were able to kind of get things uh, more calm. And uh, one person in particular who'd been probably going in and out of jail every month for the last, you know, eight months before seeing me, we were able to keep him out for over a year. Um, and I said, well, you know, this is kind of nice. And the parents are surprised and uh, this was one of my first cases with scans, so it got me intrigued. Then I had another uh, individual who was 21 living on the streets, uh, selling drugs, doing drugs, uh, all sorts of trouble legally. The the mother, God bless her, dra- literally dragged her son from South Carolina to our clinic, and he didn't want to come in. I mean, he had all sorts of other things better to do. And we, we got the scans, we looked at the surface, and the surface had all sorts of perfusion problems. And his denial, just by seeing the picture, started to erode, decrease. Um, subsequently, he decided to do a brain plane, came back a month later, and he got more excited and said he'd moved back with his mom, stopped using drugs. And I said, well, you know, what kind of got you motivated here? And he says, well, I lost 10 pounds. He was overweight, too. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, that's interesting, but you get the whole idea with, the, you know, it, that gets measured is what changes. So... We used that along with his pictures to kind of help push him. Came back three months later. Now he was working at a gym, just kind of helping people check in. Two months after that, he decided to get a certified training degree. Two months after that, he got the degree, and then he was thinking of becoming a Navy SEAL. (laughs) Now, here's a kid, eight months before, was living on the streets, had no motivation to change, no desire to make any kind of a uh, transformation. And now he's working, got a certified training degree and wants to be a Navy SEAL. That's a story. Um, and it's not just symptoms, you know, we're treating, we're really trying to evolve and change people's lives. So that story said, we got to start kind of breaking this down and see what's going on to help these people out. Um, so that's sort of the, the personal story with that. Um, I also wrote the book, uh, and it's free because the people who need it the most, they can't afford it. So it was my way of giving back to the community. And also something we don't hear much these days was my thank you to the U.S. government. I mean, the bottom line is this, is when I went to med school some 20 some years ago, they gave me loans to help pay back my debt. I wouldn't have been able to go to medical school without them. So it was my way of saying thank you to the government for giving me the opportunity to serve and help people uh, rehabilitate their brains. 
Talk a little bit about some of the common things that you're starting to see as you saw the success of that individual who went through your program, the, the treatment approach that you take. And obviously he had a great response and was able to see his life transformed. What, what did you learn from that and other patients along the way that through information you're sharing in the book and, and things that you're doing at the clinic start to really help these people and have that sort of long lasting. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's basically like five things I found that really make a difference. Um, one is you, they've got to get a schedule. You don't have to have every hour of the day filled, but a lot of these people, they don't have anything to do during the day. And so if they don't have anything to do, our brain goes back to um, autopilot, default mode network, so to speak. And we do what we're used to. And so, one of the things we found is if you just break your day in the thirds, morning, afternoon, and night, and just put one 60-minute activity constructive, it really helps the flow of getting into more of a constructive pattern. Two, we find working on self-esteem is really important. Um, a lot of these individuals from an attachment standpoint growing up didn't have one or both parents in their lives. And so we found that finding people with whom you could have a secure attachment really helped. Um, three, sobriety. I mean, uh, uh, 85% of our people right now in the jail system have some kind of substance abuse problem. 85%. I mean, that's huge. Yeah. So, I mean, if you got that problem solved, do you imagine what happened to our tax dollars? Where it would be spent elsewise? So helping them live a more guided life, staying away from substances, staying away from you know addictive kind of behavior tendencies uh, helps. Um, fourth, social support and, and really just finding good mentors. Um, oftentimes we tell these people to go to you know self-help groups, find a sponsor, but we want more than a sponsor. We want someone who they can look up to, who they can respect, who will give them a tough love if needed, but simultaneously, you know, warm heart felt support to continue to grow. And then finally, um, just every month work on one area of self-improvement and it could be anything from goal setting to finding a purpose, to being uh, more tenacious, to uh, having a vision, just finding one area per month and really focus on developing that aspect of yourself. So with those five principles, you can really start to work and rehabilitate the brain towards a, a more a constructive lifestyle. You talked about forging relationships out there that can serve as mentors, people who can influence them and maybe help them get their plan. Uh, having somebody to be accountable to certainly helps them with things like you know when you're going to train, for example, at the gym or trying to eat better, so forth, when you have somebody to serve as that touchstone and, and in some cases a mentor. How how are you able, if, if somebody comes with, say, a, a limited support system, are you able to help them or direct them in, the, in a way to help identify those types of resources? I'm sure that's a challenging part for them. Well, yeah, we, you know, you know it, it, this is where you got to get creative. So you, you got to go on the Internet. You, you need to Google different areas. You need to stay abreast of what's, what's out there. Um, good example, Chicago Project. Um, this is a program started about 2000 and has become a real forefront in helping those people, particularly on the South side of Chicago, start to decrease violence. A lot of these kids, and this is where you start to learn yourself as well. They grew up in an area where 
if somebody threatens you and you're an adolescent kid and you uh, succumb and just say yes, whatever you say to do, you become more likely to get attacked, more likely to hit. So the way you, 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 you adapt and stay alive is by becoming more aggressive. Now, that might work in that type of environment, but what do you do when you have a teacher that confronts you for talking in class? Or what if you have a policeman stop you to ask what you're doing and you take that approach? Um, you're more likely to get yourself in trouble. So the Chicago Project helps these kids start to think before they react, you know, to survive. How can you assess the situation and decide if this is a situation where there's danger? If you act like a victim, you're more likely to get hurt or be more subservient versus one where if you get more aggressive, you're more likely to get in trouble. Um, and so by teaching the kids how to take 10 to 15 seconds to observe and then come up with a solution, they've been able to markedly increase the number of kids graduating from high school, getting into college, um, and they've decreased the violence by some 30, 35%, 50% actually in those groups that have got this training in Chicago. So you've, you've got to kind of start looking and reading and seeing what's out there and then building relationships with them. So they know you're there and that I know they're there. So we can all work together. I know there's plenty of skeptics out there that don't believe that once somebody is on that path where they are uh, dealing with some substance abuse issues, as you tr described, over 85% of the people that are living incarcerated right now have dealt with substance abuse issues, but clearly you, you're of the opinion that some of these folks can actually make it out and stay out and have productive lives. What do you say to the skeptics? Well, I would say to the skeptics, let's look at the numbers here. You know, I mean, just substance abuse in general, if you, if you go to self-help group, 50% get better, right? Not everyone's going to get better. Okay, and then, then we have to ask, what are we going to do to help those that don't want help? Now, those that don't get help at all, 20% will stay sober. So um, if I said 100% get better, I'd be lying on my teeth. No one is that perfect. But if we look at data and, ex, ex, uh, kind of, I guess, respect it and say, here's where the numbers are at today. We need to get them better. But no one's perfect. But simultaneously, if 50% are getting better, and 50% aren't, we can either look at the 50% who aren't and say, what can we do differently? Or we can look at the 50% who are getting better and say, hey, what are we being so skeptical about? We, own personal opinion, as a society, I think have to be more analytic, data-driven. We've got the numbers there in our, our country and the world, for that matter. I think over the next 10 years, is going to become more numerically, digitally oriented anyhow. So why not take those numbers and do something productive with them either way. So, yeah, I mean, here, here's the scoop at our clinic. Those that just come see us, 75% get better. Those that follow us, about 85% get better. We could say, therefore, the clinic isn't doing a very good job. Or we could say, hey, 85% of the time, we see pretty good results, but we still need to focus on that 15% to see what we can do differently. So the skeptics, I would only say, give me numbers and data, and let's have a discussion. 
what sorts of resources are available to these folks if they are incarcerated? You talk about the, the high number of them dealing with a substance abuse issue. It would seem that if they don't have access to recovery processes and support, that that makes their ability to transition back to the world if they get to come back out of incarceration. And it seems like that would be more likely to doom their success. Um, do they have access to ongoing recovery type resources? Depends on the geographic location of where you're living. And, and it, it kind of gets back to the community and what's available and what's not. So some areas have got great volunteer nonprofit groups that will, when someone gets out of the system, offers them services and help to make a, a big difference. The Delaney House which has expanded. They started off in Northern California, and now they've probably got about eight houses throughout the country. Uh, so those people getting out of prison go to the Delaney House and start to get the type of training, both on how to get a job and how to build self-esteem, how to be more self-disciplined, how to be accountable, to have a much higher rate of success. But unfortunately, right now, they don't have Delaney Houses everywhere, and so you have to mm -hmm. kind of look at the community and decipher what's available and what's not. What sorts of reaction have you been getting from those in your target audience who've been able to get access and read the book? Um, for those who've read the book, it's come across as fairly positive um, in terms of the, how would I put this, from, the, from a family, you know, parolee prisoner, the results have been fairly positive. Now, the professionals... Um, it's been about 50-50. Some of the professionals are really critical of my book. They say, well, you know, what's new? This isn't anything new. And I go, totally agree. There's not, You could go find everything I put in that book, you could go find somewhere. But I'm telling you right now, there is not a book you can find specifically written for a prisoner that all that is encapsulated in. And plus, you know, there's nothing new really in the book except for maybe some of the, the, the discussion about scans and biochemistry. Um, it's more of, and I think the most important is how you go about helping these people out. It's the actual doing, the implementation of, of services operations uh, to make a difference for these individuals. You talked about how serious the mental illness issue is just in our general population and how many folks who are dealing with incarceration have had substance abuse problems. What about the, the mental illness side of things for those who've been dealing with criminality and, and being incarcerated, I would assume that a good number of the folks are also dealing with some sort of a legitimate mental illness. I know that a high proportion of the folks who end up homeless are dealing with a mental illness of some sort mental that's illness, not treated. Yeah. So what's happened is if you go back about 1980, 1985, when we as a country started closing our mental health uh, hospitals for people with mental illness and putting them out back in the communities and helping them go to community mental health centers. Um, for some that worked, for some it didn't. And so the homeless ended up getting put into to jails. I mean, that's the reality of the situation. A lot of our, our uh, jail systems have a huge, huge population of uh, of uh, people with mental illness. Um, I can't give you direct numbers. I, at Dallas, which is where I worked as the medical director of a large uh, mental health agency, 
about 25% of the population in a jail that holds about 7,500 people um, had access or being served by the mental health professionals, either get medications or follow-up visits. So, you know, it's a substantial number. It's, it's, it's large. Well, before I let you get back to your office, I know you've got a, a busy day. You have some final thoughts before we jump over and chat with our next guest today? Well, thank you for having me on. One is if you wanted to find out more about my book, you can go to www.drjfavorfsandfrankabsandboyer.com. You can download the book there for free. And then any comments you have, just feel free to send them my way. And thank you for having me on your show today. And then, of course, if you want more information about the Amen Clinic and the way they do things, that's amenclinic.com, correct? That's correct, yes. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you making time out of your day to join us, talk about the book, uh, raise a little more awareness around folks dealing with substance abuse and, and subsequent incarceration that can often come along with that. Make sure that you get out and check out the book, particularly if you have somebody in your life that's dealing with uh, an addiction or maybe they've had some trouble with incarceration. Escape Rehab Your Brain to Stay Out of the Legal System. As he was saying, it is free for you to order. So get over to his website and get you a copy. And Thank you, CW. We'll, uh, we'll have to talk more about things you're doing at the Amen Clinic and, and uh, how you're able to help folks dealing with a variety of mental illnesses. I thought that how you're using those scans and, and uh, the way you're going about rehabilitation for folks with these issues is pretty interesting. Yeah, we've got some exciting things going on. Well, we'll have you back. Thank you, CW. All right, we'll let you get back to it. Thanks so much. And coming up next, we've got Anchor Chatterjee. He's with me in the studio here, and he is with Enduring Heart. So thanks for, for making some time. Had a little adventure getting here. Yeah, just got to your old office. <laughs> thanks for having us. <laughs> Talk about Enduring Hearts and what it's all about for folks who aren't familiar. Well, the best way to explain what Enduring Hearts is, imagine yourself as the parent of a, uh, of a three-year-old child who's spent the last six months in a children's hospital uh, battling uh, dilated cardiomyopathy. And, uh, you know, your daughter has just gotten her heart transplant. The doctors turn around and tell you that, you know, yes, we're we're through this battle, but, uh, you know, this may not be the last transplant that this, uh, that your daughter gets. In fact, there's a one in four chance that she'll need another heart transplant in the next five years. Five years. Wow, that's yeah. pretty amazing. It's uh, it, it's astounding, and most people don't realize that. This is the situation that um, the founders of Enduring Hearts, the Gann family up in uh, Marietta, Georgia, uh, found themselves in back in 2012. And uh, what they did is they they after they were given this bit of information from their doctors, um, they actually looked at the research environment around uh, heart transplant longevity and specifically heart transplant longevity as it pertains to pediatric applications. And they noted that there was almost zero research dollars, zero targeted research being done regarding this topic. So what they decided to do at that point was, uh, was start Enduring Hearts and try to change that. So the mission of Enduring Hearts uh, subsequently became to increase the longevity of pediatric heart transplants and improve the quality of life for transplant recipients. Now, I know it's not been going on very long, just 2013, so it's not very far along, but have they been able to 
have some of their early work begin to identify some things that might possibly prolong a person's being able to have this transplant that they get last longer? Yes. Our first um, study, which was, uh, which was done through Emory University, um, uh, was actually selected for some, uh, t- uh, some subsequent uh, research uh, through the NIH. Typically, these studies take uh, you know, one to two years each to uh, to ramp up and fully um, understand the findings from. There's kind of a lag, but uh, we've been able to, in the last two years, uh, uh, actually um, fund almost two million dollars in uh, in seed research that is going to drive additional larger NIH style studies. When we talk about the fact that as many as one in four of these young people who uh, undergo heart transplant will end up needing a new one. I assume that means then that the transplanted heart begins to go into failure. Yeah, there's a, there's a few different things that, that can affect a, uh, a transplanted heart. There's um, the immune uh, system response, which actually starts to create uh, uh, a condition called cardiac allograft vasculopathy, which is a thickening of the uh, coronary arteries. Um, and then there's also um, there's the immunosuppress nature of being a transplant recipient, um, you're actually more prone to, uh, to infection. So that can cause uh, complications as well. Things like rheumatic fever or something like that, that like they're more particularly attacking the, the heart tissue yeah. itself or? Yeah, that can, that can occur. And also, um, just generally like right. any, any disease that these kids get, they're in school, they're getting, they're being exposed to germs all the time. You know, they, they can easily lapse into pneumonia anytime. So it, it, it can be very scary for the parents when they just get a normal bug. Well, talk about how you became involved with the project. Well, I was in enterprise software sales for 15 years. It and, makes total sense. Yeah, I know. It's a <laughs> natural progression. Um, and I was plugging along, doing fine, uh, you know, traveling almost every week. And uh, um, I have two kids of my own. And um, the founders of Enduring Hearts, uh, Patrick and Madeline Gann, they were in the throes of trying to start up this this charity, and uh, I don't know if anybody, if any of your listeners or listeners have tried to start up a charity, but uh, they are <laughs> they are a lot of work. It's a, it's a labor of love, and they were struggling with the logistics and struggling with them uh, having enough time balancing their um, trying to spend as much time with Maya and their other daughter as possible. The um, the tr- transplant recipient. And they needed help, and they they basically asked me to leave corporate America, and uh, and and give back by uh, by by running enduring hearts. And uh, you know, I took a little time to think about it, and uh, the the choice was clear. You know, do something that that helps give back and helps you know hopefully save lives of uh, hundreds of thousands of children around the world, or you know continue doing enterprise software sales. Uh, <laughs> enduring hearts one. <laughs> it's a clear choice. Talk about how hard it is for a child if they're in that position where they, they're going to require a transplant or perish. Mm-hmm. What's that process like? I mean, how hard is it to get a heart transplant for a, a child? Well, it, it varies. Um, there's been kids who've been on the transplant list uh, here in the, in the Georgia mark, in the Georgia, you know, kind of um, area who have gotten their hearts in, in, in a matter of weeks. Um, Maya, the, the inspiration for Enduring Hearts, uh, actually waited six months in the hospital. Uh, she was a uh, priority 1A, which is the highest priority, and uh, they still couldn't find a, an appropriate heart 
match for her. So, it, you know, it can be a matter of months. It can be a matter of weeks. It can even be a matter of years if, uh, if your condition is, uh, is unique enough. Um, and there are certain situations where there's um, antibody proliferation and, and so forth from previous uh, procedures and transfusions that can cause a number of complications with, uh, with, with the transplant process. So, mm. how, how many are we talking about happening on the, in the course of a year, young, young people getting transplants? Well, uh, there's, the, the statistics are kind of hard to come by in, in, you know, because of the HIPAA Act, but um, we know actually that the Atlanta area is the largest transplant center um, in the country. Um, and they do, I believe they do, you know, uh, close to a hundred proce- procedures. I, it, you can't tell if they're all heart or not, but there's a, there's a liver transplants, kidney transplants, mm-hmm. and a lot of other different transplants being done. So they, they kind of lump it together as transplant centers. Talking with Anchor Chatterjee of Enduring Hearts, a not-for-profit organization out of Marietta, Georgia, that was started to try to take a look at ways that healthcare and, and medicine might be able to extend the life of, of a given transplanted heart. Sometimes, as Anchor was talking about earlier, as many as 25% of the children who receive a transplant end up needing another one to replace that transplanted heart within just a few short years. So they're trying to uh, help fund some research uh, along that path to see if they can't maybe come up with some reasons that are common to those children who ultimately end up having to have a transplant uh, at a really uh, fairly near horizon. And you probably can't be going through that too many times in your life there. No, actually, that's a great question. Um, the, 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 they state uh, that um, the second transplant is typically more, uh, is, it has a shorter duration than the first. And then uh, the third uh, subsequently has another uh, shorter mm-hmm. uh, duration. And typically the, the body cannot handle more than that. Number. I would imagine the, the strain on the immune system was probably pretty significant. Yeah, the immunosuppressive uh, drugs um, actually, the, the biggest thing, um, typically with the second heart transplant, they, they also have to replace the kidneys because the uh, tacrolimus is the, uh, the drug that they use for immunosuppression and uh, tacrolimus is extremely uh, injurious to the, uh, to the kidneys. Mm. So, What's the experience like for the child after they go through a transplant? I mean, what is, what is life like? Are they able to go back and be a kid? Well, that's, uh, you know, that, that's the most beautiful thing about the whole thing is, uh, you know, these ki- most of these kids, even when they're in the most, um, uh, even when they're in the most difficult part of the, the process of waiting where they're pumped full of drugs, they're, they're maybe on LVADs, the left ventricular assist devices, um, they are still children and they still love to be children and they still like to play and have a good time. And that's what makes this all the more an important mission for, for us as, you know, the adults who are, you know, we, we're, we're supposed to look after these kids. We're supposed to do everything we can to help protect these kids. And, and you know, seeing them be kids is what makes this all worthwhile. Well, talk about some of the things that might surprise people about a pediatric heart transplant. Well, um, it, it's uh, uh, it, the process is is actually quite difficult. And, and a lot of people don't realize that, as I said before, once you, once you get through the transplant, uh, most people think that that's the end and end of it all. And, uh, I've in the last, you know, several months to years 
spoken to many people who have had no exposure to heart transplantation, and they're always they're floored when they hear that that the transplant does not last forever. Um, and and that's just it's just something that we try to we try to beat into people's heads because they just don't realize that the 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 work has to keep going. And the kids are on drugs for the rest of their lives. These drugs are very uh, harsh on the body. And, you know, these kids have to worry about things like uh, things like infection and uh, and different kinds of rejection. In fact, we just had a um, we had a a child, um, unfortunately, pass away about three weeks ago in this Atlanta area um, who was suffering from he he had had a transplant uh, very early on when he was uh, when he was an infant. And then he had had another transplant, uh, heart transplant when he was four. So he was on his second heart transplant and his second heart transplant had started failing. He was, uh, he was, he had just turned eight uh, mm. recently and uh, his transplant had started failing. And uh, it was actually due to something called non-HLA related rejection. And non-HLA related rejection is something that um, according to our scientific advisory committee at Enduring Hearts, is very um, mis- it's not very well understood, and the drugs that they usually use to combat this uh, this type of rejection is very um, toxic on the system. So uh, it, it was it was a very unfortunate situation. They didn't know enough about the uh, the the mechanisms of uh, of rejection to really do a whole lot, and uh, and ultimately the child um, was not able to uh, survive his rejection. Um, and that's, you know, that's, uh, th- this happens all too often. You know, this is the, this is the second time in the last year that we've lost someone in the, uh, in the Atlanta area due to, due, due to rejection. So if it's happening just in this Atlanta area, you know, it's happening all around the country and all around the world. So talking with Anchor Chatterjee of Enduring Hearts, a not-for-profit based out of uh, the Atlanta area that is funding research to try and extend the life of of transplanted hearts, particularly in young people, given the fact that they've got a whole life to live. And as Anchor was talking about, some of these children experience a failure of the heart in less than five years, uh, and their, their, their opportunities for survival really begin to fall after that first transplant has been done. So uh, they're working hard to try to fund research that will maybe find new ways to extend the life of these transplanted hearts. And Three years in now, are you in some partnerships that are looking like they might extend the the sustainability of the project? Yeah, things are things are uh, progressing along very nicely. You know, as I said before, we've we've done some grants. Uh, you know, we've done grants with uh, with Emory University. We've done some grants at uh, Duke, Columbia, uh, University of Toronto, Sick Kids, um, UPMC up in uh, Pittsburgh. Um, but uh, the the real kind of feathers in our cap, uh, aside from those, those grants that are ongoing right now, we actually last year were able to establish a, a, a co-funding alignment with the American Heart Association, where what basically what happens is they get uh, a bunch of submissions from doctors all around the country uh, who are seeking to study 
uh, heart transplant longevity and and the mechanisms behind uh, increasing longevity of heart transplants. And they actually filter that based on our criteria that we've uh, we've established through, with our scientific advisory committee. And uh, they they filter that information. They give it to us, and our scientific advisory committee reviews this these submissions, and we decide to co-fund them. So what we've been able to do through our influence uh, in the last couple of years is kind of push the AHA towards funding more heart transplant longevity related research where they weren't doing it before. Um, similarly, just uh, this year, we were actually able to make a, a similar um, co-funding alignment with the International Society for Heart and Lung Transplantation, which essentially allows us to do the same thing, but these submissions come in from all over the world. The ISHLT peer reviewing board will actually look at all these uh, submissions for grants, determine the, determine that they are um, they are fitting our criteria, and then our scientific advisory committee will take a look and uh, deem them meritorious or not, and then we'll do a similar situation. Through that, we've been able to fund uh, with each of those. We're going we're going to be doing two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year in 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 co funding, which basically nets a five hundred thousand dollar per institution total amount, which allows us to basically take our donors' dollars and double them. Mm-hmm. You know? So talk about that. What, what, what are some of the major funding sources that you've identified so far? Well, we, you know, it's, it's hard as a young charity. Uh, we've, been, we've been seeking a lot of corporate and, uh, and private foundation grants, and uh, it's a long process to get that kind of, uh, get that kind of uh, a pipeline going. Um, so far, what we've been doing is we've actually been uh, working our professional networks from our, um, from our previous uh, careers yeah. <laughs> as the donor fatigue sets in. But uh, what we also do is we do a lot of events around, around the so far, we've done a lot of them around Atlanta since we're headquartered here. But we actually just did a uh, golf tournament up in uh, up in the Maryland area with uh, with Eric Compton, who is a two time heart transplant recipient who also plays on the PGA Tour. Oh. So, so we you know for example you know we've got a um, we've got a party it's called Party for a Pulse coming up on uh, on October fourteenth and. Uh, that's basically going to be an unveiling of one of our new mar- uh, kind of outreach videos, uh, kind of educating people about the cause and the mission of Enduring Hearts. And uh, that's going to be at the Ivy at Buckhead. Um, and, you know, people can come, donate, uh, have, have some food and drink, learn more about uh, the Enduring Hearts mission and just support us overall. Um, the other kind of things that we do are um, there's something called Georgia Gives Day, which is a um, which is a kind of a flash mob of giving for uh georgia nonprofits. it happens on uh on uh, november 17th this year right yeah so <laughs> no, how do they conduct this so it's kind of a virtual event it's um it's a it, you know all the nonprofits in the area kind of start marketing against it they really start churning social media and you know hitting their websites and everything and and there's a lot of media coverage about it across across the region as well People do phonathons and so forth. Um, so what we do, we actually, you know, we reach out to pretty much everybody we know across our entire, you know, expansive network of of donors and supporters, and we ask these people to like reach out to three or four people that they know and and continue that chain. And you know, last year we were actually able to raise about one hundred seventy five thousand dollars in one day towards towards our uh, research endowment. 
Um, this year, we're hoping to uh, make that a $300,000 goal. And uh, the way we leverage actually is pretty interesting. The way to motivate some of these donors is um, we actually get corporations and businesses around, uh, around the area and around the country to put in matching donations and challenge donations. Last year, we were actually, we had a, a 15 to one or 12, 12 to one uh, uh, leverage on our, on our donations. This year, we're trying to get a 30 to one don't, uh, leverage on our donations. So we have 30 organizations who are matching dollar for dollar up to various limits. Nice. Um, how are you doing towards your, your, your goal for your, your overall funding? Well, the overall goal is to build up a $100 million endowment uh, over the next uh, eight years or so. Um, we're going to, yeah, it's a very aggressive goal. <laughs> <laughs> I, saw your, I saw his face. <laughs> but uh, it's a very aggressive goal. We, we do that through um, kind of some creative ways. We've got um, individuals donating stock and uh, making, you know, bequests and so forth. Uh, but uh, these, these things, you know, they kind of take time. We're trying to organically build up a pipeline of, of recurring donations. Um, but once we get to that $100 million mark, what that's going to allow us to do is sustainably fund about, you know, about 10% of per year based on the, the earnings of that endowment. We're, we want to continuously um, fund research uh, at that 10% of that $100 million level um, over the, until, the, until the problem is solved. Keeping the focus, obviously, then on heart transplant longevity primarily as the, as the main focus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, if, if hopefully once we solve that problem, uh, and hopefully as quickly as possible, once we solve the problem of uh, transplant longevity, we'll go and work backwards from there in, you know, treating the root cause of uh, dilated cardiomyopathy or HLHS uh, or various kinds of um, uh, CHD. HLHS is, uh, is hypoplastic left heart syndrome and CHD is congenital heart defect. So Are you finding traction with companies that are interested in contributing funding to your efforts in particular demographics or there's, is there kind of a profile of what those companies are, are looking like or is it all over the place? It's, it's all over the place. There's a lot of companies who have been very generous. Um, you know, typically they're smaller, you know, kind of service providers around, you know, who kind of are endeared to the family story. Um, but we've been over the last several months been reaching out to more of the uh, medical device and medical uh, pharmaceutical uh, industry as well. And uh, that's a longer term. Um, that's a longer term initiative. Uh, it, the, there's a lot of bureaucracy to work through in, in those organizations. So, but, you know, hopefully they'll hear this interview and, uh, and, and reach out to us. <laughs> and, and speed things up a little bit. Maybe yeah. Kick a little bit of funding along so that the research can happen more quickly. Exactly. Some eight digit uh, donations. <laughs> <laughs> you, do you have any um, information about where folks can go if they want to maybe partner with the organization to present funds as a donor or yeah they might be able to engage yeah absolutely there's information about uh about enduring hearts at www.enduringhearts.org and um you know if it, you can find my contact information there you can reach out through the uh through the contact us tab and uh we're we're a very lean organization um we we have 
you know, we have basically three people working uh, in the organization and uh, we basically respond immediately. A um, hundred million dollars raised in eight years. That, that'll be quite a success story. Pull that one off. Yeah, it'll, it'll be great. And, uh, and and the good thing about Enduring Hearts, by the way, is we don't have any salaries. Our uh, the, the way you know this nonprofit is run is we have very little overhead. The way we operate is you know basically our time as professionals is donated by other organizations that we're part of, and uh, and that basically makes it very easy for the for the efficiency metrics of this organization to be very high we ex- almost 94% of our uh donor dollar goes directly to research anchor chatterjee been talking with us about enduring hearts and their work to try and extend the life of patients who undergo heart transplant as children, as Anchor was talking about earlier. Uh, A number of these children, as many as 25% of them, end up needing a repeat transplant, sometimes more than once. And with each one of those procedures comes uh, a decreased chance of of long-term survival. It's progressively more challenging on the body to undergo uh, the the procedure itself, as well as all of the treatments that they have to go through medically to try and get the heart to not be rejected by the body's immune system. So uh, definitely interesting research. It sounds like they're making some great headway right now, uh, trying to get things started, uh, forging some partnerships. If your organization is one that wants to contribute time or funding resources uh, to this effort, make sure you get to uh, EnduringHearts.com. Or, uh, dot org. org, rather, sorry, um, to uh, get linked up with them and see how you might be able to facilitate, facilitate some of the work that they're doing. Uh, if you've not done so already, if you look in the upper left-hand corner of the Top Docs radio show page, you'll see the Apple logo there. That'll take you over to the iTunes store where the Top Docs radio show podcast lives. Make sure you subscribe to us. That way, each week when the new episode comes out, it's downloaded straight to your device, ready for you to check it out whenever it's convenient for you. And we hope you turn around and share this information with your social media network. Just click share and put it out on LinkedIn, Facebook, et cetera. Uh, That way we can get this information in the hands of as many people as possible. That's what this is really all about. You might just, for having click, share, put information in the hands of somebody that means something to you that ends up making a big difference in their life. So we'll say thanks in advance for all the folks that go to the effort of sharing this information for us. Anger, I appreciate you taking some time to stop by and talk a little bit about the project that you're working on. Thank you so much, CW. Uh, very interesting work, and it's it's really nice to be able to help you share your information. Uh, everybody out there, we appreciate you taking some time to check us out today. We look forward to catching up with you next week. We'll see you then. 